Let yourself sit at ease and listen. Not so much that there's something to remember. There'll be no exams. <laughs> or if there is an exam, it's only exam that you give yourself. Um, but more it's a kind of listening to notice what resonates with the truth that you already know in your own heart and your own experience. I just returned last week from some teaching on the East Coast at our center in Massachusetts, Insight Meditation Society. And in teaching with some colleagues and friends there, I heard some new stories and I thought, oh good, I can <laughs> swipe their stories and use them for a new talk. When we look at the world, this human world, into which we are born, we see this enormous range of human possibility and experience, a kind of unbearable beauty at times, and at other times unspeakable suffering. We see the possibilities of generosity and love and wisdom and understanding. And we also see, generated from the human heart itself, from the greed and fear and hatred, from prejudice and racism and ignorance, we see generated warfare, conflict, um, starvation in certain places and grain elevators full of food in others. So it seems that the palette of human existence offers this huge range of possibility for us. How then can we practice? How then can we undertake the spiritual path in such a way that that which is beautiful or noble or worthy of this incarnation as humans um, will grow in us. I'd like to speak of the image of the tending of the garden, the garden of the heart in particular, as one finds it in Buddhist teachings. Over the years in the development and expression of Buddhist awakening, there's emphasis on two different dimensions of our spiritual life or spiritual experience. One dimension that is emphasized is the dimension of realization, understanding a kind of sudden awakening to the way things are. And the other dimension, equally important and true, is the dimension of cultivation, of tilling the soil and of integration of actually working with and turning the circumstances of our life over and over into something beautiful. Now in the dimension of realization, the teachings are simple. O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, do not forget who you really are. Step outside the small sense of self, the body of fear, 
It is not hard to do. You've done it many times. Let go of the ideas that you have of how things should be and who you are, all the small worries and fears. And remember to rest in the timeless, in the eternal present, which is always here for you. T.S. Eliot's words are, Here now always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. Let go of your plans, let go of your expectations, let go of your past. And in that there is a freedom of heart that nothing and no one can alter or touch. Let yourself awaken, remember the unborn, the timeless, that pure awareness that knows experience and yet is not limited by this. And for those who were here last week when I translated for Ajahn Chamnian, the forest teacher from southern Thailand, you could hear this flavor in part of his teaching, to rest in the great awareness that knows these words as I speak, that knows the sensations of body and the breath that moves in and out, without grasping or clinging, that sees this world as a dance, a dream, an echo, a rainbow. And if you look in Buddhist history, around the Buddha, the Buddha was speaking this way all the time, um, and as the stories are told anyway, all these people were awakening and saying, oh yeah, that's true, isn't it? I'm not just limited by my thoughts or emotions or sense of small sense of self, by my birth and conditioning. There is another dimension, that which is timeless and true, our own consciousness, our own awareness, that which hears these words. Rest in that reality. Let go into it, trust it. Now, even those who are aware of this reality, the reality of the present, who rest in the open and awakened heart or mind, who have entered the stream, which is the Buddhist phrase for awakening, even those among us who understand this, which is many, realize that there is still a need on the other side for cultivation, for integration, for embodying the understanding of the heart, the deepest understanding, in our words, in our deeds, in our community, in our world. Like the Zen poet who wrote, my life is but a drop of dew on the leaf tip. You can kind of see it hanging there. It could drop any moment and disappear. My life is but a drop of dew on the leaf tip, so impermanent, so ephemeral. And yet, and yet, was the second line of the poem. Yes, it's all empty, and yet, here we are in these human forms with our families and our lovers and our friends and our enemies, 
and that which makes up this world. And just because it is so fleeting, it is also so precious. Only one day like this, only one moment ever like this. For the long haul, if one thinks in terms of time rather than the present moment, the image from the Buddhist tradition is of the bodhisattva, of a being, any of us, who becomes dedicated to compassion and wakefulness no matter what arises, resting in a commitment to compassion, resting in a commitment to being awake, no matter what happens, then all the circumstances that unfold in life become the place of practice. This becomes more like the tending of a garden. And the garden doesn't grow in this way of understanding completely by accident. This is one of the earliest of of the Buddhist texts or sutras. Early one morning, while on his alms round, the Buddha approached the area of the spring plowing where a Brahmin priest was distributing food to his workers. And when the Blessed One arrived with his bowl, the Brahmin said, O monk, I plow and sow, and having done so, do I eat. You must also, likewise, plow and sow, and then you will have something to eat. It's like a little challenge. You know, you monks who don't work, why should I give you any food? And the Buddha replied, O Brahman, I too plow and sow, and having done so, I eat. And the Brahman priest says, You claim to be a plowman, yet I see not your tools. Tell me, what kind of plowing is it that you do? And the Blessed One replied, Trust is the seed. Trust in one's own Buddha nature, that's the seed that you plant. And composure, constancy, patience, composure is the rain. You plant the seed of trust in your own true nature, and patience or constancy is the rain. Generosity is my plow and yoke. Conscience, my guide pole, and mind the harness. Wakefulness is the plow blade and goad. Well guarded in action and speech, I use truth to weed and cultivate release. Wise effort is the oxen drawing the plow steadily toward liberation, freedom without regret. This is how I plow, and it bears the fruit of the deathless. Whoever plows in this way will become free of all sorrows. And then the Brahman bowed and exclaimed, Let the venerable monk eat, you are indeed a great farmer or plowman. And then as the story goes, I love these old myths and stories of the elders, the Brahman then came and put food into the bowl of the Buddha, but the Buddha was unable to eat it because as it hit the bowl, it hissed and steamed and evaporated. The way, if you've ever been, um, ever seen plowing, at the end of a, 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 a long row or a series of row of furrows, the plow heats up in the soil. It gets very, very hot, and you could put water on the plow and it will steam off. And so the bowl of the Buddha 
steamed like the plow. So that's the story, one of the oldest of the Buddhist stories, wandering. Now, if one were to add a second part to that text, not only does one plow and plant the seed of faith and use generosity and modesty and attention and so forth, but after you've plowed, then the weeds come up as well as the the crop that you planted. There are all kinds of obstacles. There's drought and there are insects. And what's required after plowing is the same mindfulness and wise attention and caring for things without blaming. For most people, spiritual life unfolds in this same way, whether it is in business or in parenting or in love relationship. You set out to plow a certain field or to develop or grow a particular garden. And as you do, all of a sudden you notice that there are weeds and that there's drought and that there are insects. Um, And you realize that what you're tending, whether it's your family or your work or your meditation or your love, needs the rain of patience or it needs the rain of compassion. Or maybe there are there are the insects there in your garden and you need to plant marigolds. It's like your garden is too alone and you need the sangha of all kinds of other beings to help tend your garden. Or maybe as you sit in meditation or work in your community or in your relationship, all of a sudden the weeds of loneliness come or sadness or grief or something difficult and you don't know what to do with the weeds. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi says, plow them under, let them become manure for Bodhi. And the way that you do that is not to turn away from the weeds, but rather let them be part of the compassion and attention you give to your experience of parenting or business or meditation or love relationship. Hafiz, the wonderful Middle Eastern sage and poet, writes, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deeply. Let it ferment and season you as few human or divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, the need of the sacred absolutely clear. So when you come to the weeds, don't turn away from them and open the refrigerator and turn on the television and distract yourself. If you're lonely, be really lonely and see what it is you're really lonely for. If you're sad, weep the tears of grief that you've carried too long. If you're angry, learn about the weeds of anger, the manure for Bodhi, and turn it into something of value, respect it. So in spiritual life, you plant the seeds. You set the direction. You plant the seeds of your own true nature, of your faith. And then obstacles arise. In business, 
they come all the time. You don't have enough capital, or your key employee quits, or the market changes, or you have problems with your business partner, or your supplier gets bought up by some big company, or the competition becomes stiffer, or the interest rates rise. It happens all the time, doesn't it? You set yourself a direction in business, and then one after another you meet obstacles. In parenting, it's the same. You have this beautiful little creature, this angelic little creature, and then all of a sudden it wants to put everything into its mouth, right? And it wants to run around in traffic or wherever else its little legs will carry it, you know? Or as it gets a little older and it starts to play with others of its species, it wants to hit them with blocks and take (laughs) things away from them. And it doesn't quite know how to socialize itself yet. Or as it gets bigger and it wants to ride its bicycle at fast speeds, you know, over dangerous things and play sports and go do things that, where, that are dangerous for it. Or maybe it beca- goes, becomes a teen then or goes through puberty and then it wants to experiment as it does with independence and sexuality and cars and alcohol and drugs and responsibility or lack of their the same. And you see the succession of obstacles that are required of you as a parent, one after another. In love, it's the same, isn't it? At first, you fall in love. I love that expression, falling. You're not standing in love, you're falling in love, right? And then after a time, it changes, like all things. And the shadows that weren't so visible when it was so glorious appear. And in those shadows, there has to be negotiation and acceptance and surrender and where to live and how to live and well, how to eat and how to, how to live your life with somebody who's so damn different than you <laughs> that you thought for a while would be so great, but then they turned out to be different. And it's the same in meditation. You sit and everything seems calm, you know, and then the grief that you carry comes, or the body pain that's there that you haven't paid attention to all of a sudden arises. Oh yeah, I forgot about, oh, you know, six years of that work project that are in my shoulders now start to release, you know. Or the mind, its anxiety and the stories it tells and the fears and the things from the past. So what do you do? You set yourself in the direction of love and compassion, of awakening and freedom. You breathe. You practice patience, letting go, forgiveness, compassion over and over. You ground yourself in the reality of the present and bow to the things that arise and cultivate again and again a trust of this open and balanced heart. You stay steady through the obstacles. As the carpenter turns his wood on the lathe, and as the farmer channels water to his land, the wise one directs their heart and mind, says the Buddha. Or another verse, do not ignore the effects of mindful action 
of your good actions. Saying this will come to nothing. Just as by the gradual fall of raindrops the water jar is filled, so in time the wise heart becomes filled with goodness. Drop by drop, little by little. You keep your heart connected with the seed that you've planted, the seed that's awakening in you of your own Buddha nature. The obstacles are not the main event. They're just things to play with, to learn how to live in a more creative and open way to awaken you. So a story, at least this is the version I remember of it, in Ohio, a teacher named Mrs. Matthews taught math. And in her elementary school class, she had one young boy, Billy Coleman was his name, who wasn't a bad math student, but he was kind of the class cut-up. And he smiled and laughed at almost everything and had a, a joke. And needless to say, periodically she had to discipline him. And he would just laugh about that too. It was really hard to... Uh, be too hard on him because he had such a good spirit. And teachers tend to like the class cut-ups, it turns out, if they don't cut up in quite the wrong way. Anyway, some years later, she had transferred to teach math at a higher level in high school, and there was Billy Coleman again in her class. Hello, Mrs. Matthews. So nice to see you. The class was going along, as high school classes do, with its own obstacles up and down, especially math. And in one particular day, they were having a hard time, and Billy was cutting up more than anybody else, and she decided to discipline him and have him stand in the corner. And The whole class was just not working right. And finally, she threw up her hands, and she said, All right, today we can't learn math. Billy, come back to your seat. I'll give you a different project to do. And she handed out to each person in the class a copy of the class list. Or maybe she wrote all the names on the board. And she said, I want you next to, to take a piece of paper and next to the name of each of your 28 classmates, I want you to write one thing that you see that's particularly good about this person or that you like about this person. So everybody sat down and they wrote their little passages, one thing that they liked about each person. Even the ones you have difficulty with, you can find something, you know. And then the class was almost over. She said, you study on your own. And over the next few days at home, while the class continued to learn math, she cut up those pages that were given to her and assembled on one page for each child the 28 favorite things that others had written about them. Imagine getting that. And she came back to the class and handed them out in a kind of ritual way to each child. Here is your special page. And you read down and you say, oh, somebody noticed that. And oh, somebody likes that in me and that too. And isn't that wonderful to be seen in that way? And somehow she said, Mrs. Matthews said, it changed the whole way the math class functioned, and after that, things went much better. <laughs> so, about eight or nine years after that, Mrs. Matthews 
got a telephone call, a very sad call, from the parents of Billy Coleman, saying, are you Mrs. Matthews, the math teacher that Billy used to have in high school? I said, yes, I am. They said, well, after Billy graduated from college, he went into the service, you know. And unfortunately, I have to tell you that he was killed. I don't know where it was, Kuwait or Kosovo or Somalia or Grenada or one of those places where people get killed. But anyway, we would like you to come to his funeral. Mrs. Matthews said, all right. They said, we have something special to give you. So she went to Billy Coleman's funeral and stood there and they did all the services and at the very end, his parents came up and said, I have some, we have something that we need to give to you. She said, when we, they brought our Billy's body back, we were given the things that he carried with him, and there was very little in his pocket. There were a few pictures of his family, and there was this. And we believe this came from you. And sure enough, folded up in such a way that it looked like it had been folded and unfolded, dozens, maybe hundreds of times, was that page of 28 things that had been written about Billy Coleman by his classmates. And she looked at it and she began to weep. A tear rolled down her cheek, thinking of him and that day. And then she looked around, and there were around her six or seven of Billy's old high school classmates. And one of the girls said, "Oh." I still carry mine too, and took out her wallet and unfolded the page. And one of the young men said, well, when we got married, my wife had me frame it and we put it on the wall in the kitchen. And another boy said, I have it and I've showed it to my young son. And it turned out every one of them who was there still carried the page with them. So yes, you will deal with difficulties in your spiritual practice and in your life, but trust that there is a reality. The seed of who you are, O oh, nobly born, your own true nature, your own goodness, that cannot be touched by any of the changing circumstances of life. Respect this truth. Rest in it. Trust it. It is your own true home, your own true nature. As the Buddha said in the Dhammapada, for the bee that gathers nectar and perfume from the flower without marring its beauty, so let the wise one wander, bringing harm to no one and blessing all. Like a garland woven from a heap of flowers, fashioned from your life as many good deeds. So these are images of beauty or goodness, to make a beautiful garland one moment after another out of your goodness. Or like the bee that gathers the perfume and the honey and the nectar, without harming a living being, go through the circumstances of your life with compassion, with care, and tenderness, with attention and wisdom. 
Now, of course, when one hears these teachings, it's also possible to get a little bit idealistic. Oh, this is how my life is supposed to be. But the truth is, gardens are also messy places. There's compost, and there's weeds, and there's new things that are growing, and there's things that are old, and stuff that has to be trimmed and cut down, you know. And you can have the idea of the perfect garden from House Beautiful, or whatever you saw that picture in, which was the best garden in Marin, taken on the finest spring day, with a good camera from the right angle with the right light, right? And it doesn't show the snails, and it doesn't show, you know, all the things that were necessary to tend it, to get it to that moment that was just one moment. So it's easy to get idealistic about spiritual development. Okay, if I do this, everything will be fine. If you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can love unconditionally, if you can see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, (laughs) if you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate, if you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, if you can always find contentment just where you are, you are probably a dog. It's not the way it happens for human beings, folks. There are storms that blow over things in the garden, you know, and the soil needs amendments at times. And the people around us who are part of the team of gardening, we need to figure out how to use the resources of our life and to work with what's present to nourish the garden. Sometimes it's the time for wakefulness and compassion. Sometimes it's the time to let go. Sometimes it's the time to trust. Sometimes it's the time to act. And similarly, you know, in the gardening process of your life, sometimes it's the time to prune. Say no, absolutely not. Cut something off, isn't it? Sometimes it's the time to say yes, to fertilize, to say more. All right, let's, let's do that. Let's, let's change in that way. Sometimes it's what's called for is rest and sleep and letting things be fallow. Sometimes it's times really for vigorous action. And you have to begin to listen in your parenting, in your love relationships, in your work, in your gardening, in your meditation, when is it time to rest, to take a vacation, to trust, to let go, to just let be? And when is it the time for action and care and concern? Again from the Buddha, listen carefully, says the Buddha, if you who seek understanding, do not ask about caste, or birth, 
riches or, 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 or clan, but instead ask about heart. Look at the flames of a fire. From whence do they come? From a simple piece of wood. And in truth, it does not matter what kind of wood. In the same way, a wise person can come from wood of any sort. It is through compassion and virtue, through loving kindness and understanding of truth that one becomes noble. And the wood of any sort can produce a noble being. There's a wonderful and very simple practice that I've heard in, in the Buddhist tradition um, in which you visualize that all beings in the world are enlightened but one. Every single being in the world is enlightened except for one. Guess who? Right? And all of the other beings are doing exactly the things necessary to bring you, the one unenlightened one, the perfect lessons of letting go, of constancy, of patience, of compassion, of forgiveness, of presence, of heart. They're doing the perfect things to help you truly open your heart. Only one person. Now you'll notice in the process of your daily meditation, those of you who do practice, whether in your daily sitting or walking around and doing loving-kindness or compassion practice. You'll notice it in your relationships. You'll notice in your own body that when the obstacles come, when the difficulties inevitably come as they do, the mind tends to want to blame and tell stories about whose fault it is and what's wrong with them or what's wrong with me or who's to blame in this way. The judging mind tell so many stories. Don't put much stock in these stories. Don't believe them very much. Garden from the heart, not the mind. Let it tell its stories, but your task is to be compassionate anyway. Forgive anyway. Let go anyway. Speak the truth anyway. A story for you. A person came to one of the retreats at Spirit Rock, practiced for 10 days, awareness of body and mind and feelings, all the kinds of trainings that we do, loving kindness and compassion, and then decided to go, um, or, or was on her way back home, um, and um, went to the airport a bit early, as you need to these days because of the long lines and the security. Got there a few hours early, checked in her luggage and so forth. Said, well, I've got I to gotta wait till the plane. Picked up a couple of magazines to read and a bag of cookies. Went to the waiting area and sat down and began to read her magazines. And a young man sat down near her, obviously waiting for the plane. Started reading. And after a little while, she noticed that he opened the bag of cookies and took one out. <laughs> this was kind of shocking, but since she'd been on retreat, she took a breath and said, letting go, letting go, it's all right. And now since the bag was open and she could smell the cookies, she said, all right, I'll have a cookie too. 
So she took a cookie and began to eat, continued to read. And he would once in a while reach in and take a cookie and said, well, I guess what's happening is cookie eating. So she would reach in and take a cookie, read. She had some stories going in her mind about how the nerve and how and imagine that. But nevertheless, she said, I've been practicing, let go of the stories, just breathe, compassion, forgiveness, maybe he's hungry. No blame, right? Finally, one cookie left. She sees the one cookie in the bag, and he reaches in and pulls out the last cookie, looks over at her, breaks it in half, and hands half to her. The nerve, right? Okay, breathing, practicing, she takes the cookie and eats it. Think she did pretty well, huh, for that. So then, you know, they call the flights. He actually goes onto a different plane, some other direction, and she goes onto her plane. And as she's putting her baggage up in the rack above her seat, all of a sudden, her bag of cookies falls out. Unopened. We have a lot of stories about what other people are doing to us. Don't put a lot of stock in the stories of the mind. Garden from the heart. Remember the seed, even when you're embarrassed, humbled, humiliated. You breathe and you say, okay, let me keep tending the seed of goodness, no matter what it is. Because you'll be a fool, you know. It's like that beautiful poem from Zen Master Ryokan, the most beloved poet of Japan where he writes, spring morning, my begging is finished, I hang my bowl by the side of the Buddhist shrine to play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. (laughs) So all these things will come, and you bow to them and say, yes, this too. It's like this wonderful Lama, Kalarimache, when friends took him to the aquarium and the zoo and places like that, he would go around and he would bless every fish and every animal. May you to awaken. May you be liberated. That was his way of going through the world. Every creature that he met, may you too remember who you really are. There is a true story and a wonderful one about a woman named Kathy Sneed in San Francisco who, um, uh, in the early 1980s, became very concerned about the spiritual starvation, you could call it the soul death, of so many people who were in our jails and prisons, which are like poverty prisons, basically. If you're a young man and you're born into the wrong neighborhood or you're born into the wrong community because they're really racist prisons in many ways, then likely that's where you're going to end up the way the society is constructed. And out of a grief for this, and because she was a gardener, she went to the San Francisco city jail. There were these old greenhouses and things. It used to be a farm. And she got permission 
to start a garden and make plots for the men in San Francisco and raised money and got garden tools and seeds and all those kinds of things. And to be able to grow a garden with your own hands is such an amazing thing. To be responsible for tending it and its blooming and overcoming the insects and all these things. And somehow the people who chose to do it, it really brought beautiful things out of them. They awakened a connection to something greater than themselves. Kathy Sneed tells about one great big huge, you know, kind of black guy who'd been in the gangs and whatever. And he was saying, don't step on my babies, you know, after he had just planted his little garden. There was this whole tenderness that came out of these people. And the, the prison guards or wardens were also really amazed by the change. The garden became so important to those who cared for them that a lot of the men, their lives revolved around the growth of that things, the plants in their garden. In fact, when some of them got released from jail, they were so concerned about their garden, they went and committed petty crimes to get back in to kind of harvest and so forth. That's when Kathy did the next step and made community gardens so that you didn't have to be inside <laughs> to tend. And in a way, the garden project became the real garden, which was the garden of tending to the souls or the spirits of human beings. In the same way, the practices of loving-kindness and compassion for those of you that do metta practice, where one uses the phrases, uh, may I be well, may I be safe from inner and outer danger, may I be healed, may I be filled with loving-kindness, those kind of things. Sometimes people start, they can't do it. The garden is so um, dry in there. How could I wish well for myself? It feels so egotistical, or it's so weird. Um, there's so much unworthiness in us and lack of love. And so we say, well, then don't start there. You know, do your loving kindness for your dog. Do it for your teddy bear. Do it for a benefactor, for someone who has seen and loved you. And little by little, let the moisture of those phrases May you be safe, may you be well, may you be held in peace for someone else that you love. Grow in you and then pause after a while and turn around and look at yourself from their eyes and see how does this benefactor, this person who loved you, how do they see you? What might they wish for you? And then the watering of the garden comes back. Well, maybe I could say, may I be well, may I be safe from danger, may I be healed. Planting the seeds of awareness and compassion whenever we fall asleep, whenever there's too much pain or grief or fear, you feel overwhelmed. All we need to do is take it moment by moment. The secret, it says in the Bhagavad Gita, is to act well without attachment to the fruit of the actions. You just plant the seeds again and again. May you be well, may you be safe. And they will grow in their own good time. We are all connected in such a deep and mysterious way.
Sharon Salzberg tells the story of um, being very profoundly inspired by Aung San Suu Kyi, the Burmese Nobel Prize winner, who was just released from house arrest some weeks ago, kind of the light of Burma, who spent now nine years in house arrest, couldn't see her children. Her husband died in England. They wouldn't let her go and see her husband and come back. And she would not, you know, they said, you can go, but you can't come back to Burma. Said, no, no, I'm here for, for the people of Burma. I, I cannot leave. And Sharon used to say, if there was, you know, I'm so inspired, I'd love to go visit her or whatever. It turns out that one of the Burmese teachers who visits our community um, had done a retreat in a center in Massachusetts in Barrie, IMS. And um, a, a little book was made of his talks, Upandita Saido, a book called In This Very Life. And Sharon's thought was, well, this is a nice book, and maybe it will go out to a few people and help benefit them in their meditation. But what she didn't know until some years later is Aung San Suu Kyi was there home by herself for those years and really wanting to know how to meditate because the spiritual life was what carried her and trying and being frustrated and not knowing. And then a friend got hold of this book of this Burmese teacher who'd come to America and smuggled it into her in Burma in English. And she read it and she said it really gave her hope. It really showed her how to work with her own mind. And in fact, that Burmese master, Upandita, became her teacher. And Sherry said, you know, Sharon said, you know, it's really odd. I would have done anything to help this woman. It's like helping the Dalai Lama or Nelson Mandela or someone that you admire a lot. But I could never have imagined how I might have done it. And here I was, continents away, working on this little project to make these teachings available to a few other people. And how could I know that it would be the seed that would go halfway around the world back to where it came from and help this woman who I so admire? We are connected to one another in such deep and mysterious ways. When a traveler at last comes home from a far journey, says the Buddha, with what gladness their family and friends receive them. Even so will your good deeds welcome you like friends, and with what rejoicing when you pass from this place to the next. So we tend the seeds of goodness, steadiness, trust, bring the blessings. We awaken to this one moment after another. I was just in New York as well as Massachusetts, and it's interesting being back in New York after, it's the first time I've been back since last September 9-11. There are all the stories of what good and brave things came out of human beings during that time. The police, the firefighters, the people on the streets, and you know, New York felt different. People were friendlier and more open and more connected and kinder. It was kind of extraordinary to be in New York. Those who do not have faith in others will not be able to stand on their own. Those who are suspicious will always be lonely. 
or Alan Watts who puts it this way, belief clings, faith lets go. If you really have faith in your own goodness and the goodness of others, then you can trust, you can let go. You can live this practice moment by moment. You can trust the seed of goodness and water it and nourish it. In each difficult circumstance, that is the place for weeding and tending and caring. Thoreau writes, Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. This is the seed in human beings. Our life is so mysterious, you know. It keeps appearing out of nothing. New, new days, new months, new years, unfolding out of the void, the spewing out of thoughts, you know, like the thought factory had um, as much uh, material as was necessary to make nonstop thoughts 24 hours a day if you wanted them. It's phenomenal. And feelings that keep coming, a river of feelings, out of where? Out of nothing. The same nothing that the stars and the galaxies come from and to which they disappear. And if you don't believe me, go sit with someone who's dying. Here's this whole amazing being that you know and you recognize and you have these conversations in this whole life and then it's not there in that way. How could that be? And not only that, guess to whom else this will happen? Moi, as Miss Piggy would say. To be alive, to know that we will die, to see the worlds exist in this great darkness of space, all these balls of light and fire that hang out there, and the planet spinning, nobody can explain it, and it's phenomenal. O nobly born, remember this mystery. Trust this great mystery. Let go into it and meet it with the heart of compassion. One last story for you. I like elephants. Probably a lot of you do too. They're kind of amazing beings and we have not treated our elephant brothers and sisters very well on this earth. The elephants that are brought to America, unfortunately, generally exist in circuses or zoos, which is a pretty sad thing for such communal creatures. So in the newspapers, it was reported about an elephant that was at a zoo in Louisiana, not the main zoo in New Orleans, but some smaller zoo, maybe it was Baton Rouge or wherever, I don't know. Her name was Shirley, and she was there, but it wasn't a big zoo, so they had one elephant, which is pretty lonely for an elephant. And Shirley was the elephant that was there for 25 years. And then as Shirley got older, they made arrangements to get a younger elephant. And it happens that there is a woman in Tennessee 
who loves elephants very much, knows that they are social creatures, and so cares about them that she bought hundreds of acres of good Tennessee farmland and made a refuge for elephants for anyone that needs to send an elephant somewhere. This is true. So she has dozens of elephants there that are retired from circuses or whatever. They're just there. You can go to Tennessee and see her elephants. So Shirley was sent to Tennessee, to this place. But because Shirley had been alone for 25 years, they didn't want to just send her out into the herd of elephants there. They didn't know, you know, about her socialization and so forth. So they put her in a holding pen, which they do for new elephants, next to the great, you know, open space. And the other elephants come up and they have their trunks and they kind of feel each other and smell one another and say hello in the different ways that elephants do. And they kind of paraded by. And then at some point that we're watching, this one elephant came up and got so excited and started banging against the bars of the of the pen and Shirley got excited on her hind legs and almost broke through the bars of the pen and they tried to figure out was this a relative? What was this, you know? And finally they got them quieted down and did a little bit of research and discovered that before Shirley had been sent to the Louisiana Zoo more than 25 years before, for a couple of years she had been in the circus with this other elephant. They were old friends, sisters, as a matter of fact, from the circus, and they hadn't seen one another in 25 years, and they were so excited. So when Shirley was let out, then Shirley and her friend palled around for the rest of their days in this very happy way. We are connected. It is the truth. We are born out of the stars and out of the minerals of the earth and out of the consciousness that brings life to all beings. Rest in this web of life from which you can never fall. Rest in the reality of the present. Trust in the present moment. O nobly born, Remember who you really are and nourish the seeds of this understanding with compassion and care and wisdom. Let the garden of your heart flower in this life. So let's sit for a moment.
So the chant is this, a very simple chant. Um, I would like us to chant the word Namo nine times. In India, when you meet someone, um, you bow to them and you say Namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. Um, Or maybe it means I see you. I see who you really are behind all those clothes and disguises and things that are on the surface. And the root of that greeting, namaste, is the Sanskrit word namo, which means to bow to, to honor. So we will chant namo and bow to, as you do inwardly, um, your own Buddha nature, the capacity for compassion and wakefulness that is in your own heart. Bow to the beings around you, to those in the world, who need your blessings to the places that you want to offer your prayers. And also a bow for Clements, who's the father of one of our community members who died recently, and for all those who are making a passage from living in this human form, this life, um, to the next. Namo 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 Add harmony blessings, and may you tend the garden of this world beautifully. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.